0: Dear listeners, it's another episode of The Remnant Podcast. This is Jonah Goldberg coming to you, uh, not quite live, but, but not dead um, either, um, from the studios at the American Enterprise Institute. Uh, this week's podcast is brought to you by not one, but two fantastic sponsors, which we'll talk about a little bit more later, but they are our good friends at tripping.com, and as well as our uh, great friends at Donors Trust, and I will talk about both of those in a little bit. Lots of stuff has been going on. I just got back from Tennessee from Knoxville, um, where I gave a speech last night that was um, it was it was nice. I expected you know at least some nastiness and got almost none. And so I'm a little frazzled and um, unkempt and uh, malodorous. but I'm in the studio now and I uh, am with the uh, um, lovely and talented new managing editor, managing editor. Yes. Managing editor of of that second-rate magazine, The Weekly Standard. Now, now. <laughs> um, and uh, Christine Rosen. Christine, welcome. Thank you. So, uh,
1: first of all, how the hell did this happen?
0: I couldn't believe it when I saw that you were the new managing editor of The Weekly Standard.
1: A lot of bribery. No, I'm kidding. Um, well, you know, it, uh, it was serendipitous, uh, at least I believe so. I've known... A lot of the ladies and gentlemen over there for years, they sort of feel like family. And, and I do fit in in the sense that, you know, I grew up with my nose in a book and Star Wars bedsheets. So, you know, it's kind of a seamless transition. Uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful place. It is. Um, and uh, we're very excited about really expanding the reach of the magazine and trying some new things.
0: So um, I guess I should do some for listeners, the the rare handcuffed to a radiator in a motel listener who doesn't, you know, locked in a refrigerator listener who doesn't know who you are. We should do a little bit of a bio. You were one of the, this is all from memory. Uh, Christine came up to me beforehand and says, you know, I've done no preparation for this. And I was like, join the club. <laughs> I'll correct you if you did anything wrong. <laughs> one of the founders of New
1: Atlantis? Yes. Okay.
0: Frequent comment, uh, contributor to, to commentary?
1: Yes. Write a I'm column missing, for them.
0: I'm missing one of the big ones.
1: I don't know. I, I, you used to be an his- associate
0: of the American Enterprise Institute. Yeah, still yes, are.
1: I was a I was an adjunct scholar uh-huh. at AEI for years. I was at the Ethics and Public Policy Center for maybe a long right. time. Um, I'm a historian by yeah. training. well, uh, well,
0: that's uh, the one I want to bring up, and maybe we can jump in with that. I wanted to bring up that you wrote. I think I'm one of the not one of the only non PhD students to uh, <laughs> be very familiar with your book, Preaching Eugenics. Besides
1: my grandmother, <laughs> I was forced to read it. Yes, <laughs> um,
0: you wrote a wonderful book called Preaching Eugenics about the. Uh, basically the social gospel movement, mm-hmm. um, and its relationship to eugenics, which was a real wonderful eye-opener for me um, when I was working on my first book, uh, Liberal Fascism. And what made you want to do that?
1: Well, I was raised uh, as a fundamentalist Christian. So mm-hmm. I was taught uh, creation science. And when I got to college, I started learning all about evolutionary theory and the battles between religion and science. And uh, I was in a seminar, graduate seminar, One of my wonderful professors, Patrick Allett, mentioned the eugenics movement, which I'd really never heard much about. And he said, you should start reading about it. Mm -hmm. And um, the fact that I had gotten all the way to graduate school in American history and hadn't heard much about the eugenics movement prompted me to start digging around. Mm -hmm. Um, And a lot of Americans don't know about it. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's really well worth knowing about because it has a lot of cautionary lessons for today.
0: Yeah. So I think there's this I mean, I hate to be conspiratorial. You know, I'm now the House Goy at NPR. I'm this new <laughs> sort of moderate centrist guy, apparently. Um, but there's a secret reason why a lot of people don't know about eugenics. It's because it's inconvenient to the narrative of progressivism,
1: right? Absolutely. Yes, it was It was championed by many progressive heroes and heroines, like Margaret Sanger, for example. Right. Um, and we like to bury our inconvenient past here in the United States, and that's certainly a large and... and rather awful episode that we've buried. Right. I mean, have you read the Thomas Leonard book? Yes. Yeah. It's wonderful. It's I highly recommend that yeah. book.
0: It's a book called uh, Illiberal Reformers by this guy Thomas Leonard, whose stuff, before his book came out, I used... He's a Princeton historian, mm-hmm. widely respected, um, widely detested by people who don't like to bring up the, progress- the, the progressive eugenics link, but, you know... But, you know, this is one of my great peeves about American history, is that whenever remotely conservative people are to blame for something then it's proof of the evil of conservatism right? mm-hmm. whenever progressives like in the case of eugenics which was like soaked to the bone racist more racist than anything anybody's ever accused donald trump of being right you know the whole idea of the minimum wage was that uh, the lesser races couldn't outwork the white man but they could underlive him as i think ea ross put it and so whenever there's a bad chapter that progressives or liberals are responsible for it's not the progressives' fault. It is. It speaks to the very soul of America, mm-hmm. right? So yes. when when it's McCarthyites who are anti communist it's, oh, these right-wingers, paranoid style, conservatives <laughs> are evil, whatever, whatever. When you have pomerades or whatever, all of a sudden, it gets to the very heart of the problem with America itself. There's never any in, in almost all of the liberal historiography anything about how liberals did anything
1: wrong. Yes, and that the efforts to transform uh, human nature often fail and, mm-hmm. and on a rather... Fast scale.
0: You could look it up. (laughs) Um, And uh, so I'm going to nerd out with you for a second. Um, So, when you were raised creationist, Mm -hmm. your term, not mine, right? First of all, 6,000 year Earth, all that stuff.
1: Yes, you know, uh, carbon dating to disprove uh, the age of the Earth and Uh lots of discussions of dinosaur bones. Yes.
0: Man fought dinosaurs, all Mm -hmm, that. Which, let's just be fair for one thing, right? Forget the theology for a second. That would be really cool.
1: Yes. <laughs> there's, a, there's a sort of wishful thinking aspect yeah. to it.
0: We're, so were creationists post-millenarian millenarian or pre-millenarian?
1: Well, I right. So it depends
0: on... We should probably explain uh, for... You
1: explain. Okay. You, so
0: <laughs> my understanding, you correct me if I'm wrong, you're the historian, right? So post-millenarianism is all of the immunitarized, the eschaton stuff. Post-millenarianism says um, we have to create a heaven on earth. Right that we can be utopians, that uh, redemption is a collective enterprise. We're all in it together. The premillenarian, which is sort of the quietest tradition in evangelical Christianity, mm-hmm. says, worry not about what's going on in secular affairs. Our kingdom comes in the hereafter, not right. in the here now.
1: Right. Fair? Yes, okay. fair. Uh, so we were definitely the uh, withdraw from the popular culture. Uh-huh. We weren't allowed to watch. We weren't supposed to watch television. Um, popular culture was... was Anathema, so very separatist.
0: Where'd you, where'd you get your Star Wars sheets?
1: So, <laughs> I luckily um, had in-house rebels in the form of my parents, who you know sent us to this school because it was safer and cheaper than okay. some of the other options, um, and uh, weren't quite a hundred percent on board with the message. So uh-huh. we would come home and say, you know, things like, "Do you know a woman's most important future role is as a Christian mother, and you know, college really isn't necessarily." gonna help with that goal. and you know my father would roll his eyes and go, yeah, you've got to go to college. Uh-huh. So, but many of my friends did not and many of them were raised to believe that their role was to be the subordinate to Christian men and have as many kids as possible. and, um, and they chose to do that. Um, but so I got the pop culture on the side and uh, which thank goodness, but we it's one of the limiting factors of both, I think, any efforts to withdraw from culture, um, whether religious or not, if you're raising kids in an environment where you're trying to keep the outside world out, they will eventually try to find a, a hole in the wall and crawl out. And mm-hmm. I certainly did that as a college student. I know that's true of many kids who were raised in very strict religious backgrounds. So.
0: Okay. So um, – and this was in Florida.
1: In Florida, yes. So you you went – To add to the weirdness.
0: <laughs> you, went to, you went to high school with many Florida mans.
1: Yes, I did.
0: Okay. <laughs> I did. Um, so this has become a running theme – uh, on here, Charles Murray, Brian Kaplan, they both come from the school of thought that says parenting, schmarenting, right? That we're going to be what we're going to be, the ability for us to influence the personality of our children too much. Um, is, is they, they don't say it's nothing, you know, they, parents have power over time and location stuff and all that, but
1: the ability to actually change people's personality is profoundly limited. Do you buy it? Uh, not quite. Um, I mean, I'm a parent myself, so I like to think every time I make a horrible parenting error that that is true. <laughs> but I think what parents do have power over is um, a kind of worldview. And uh, in my case, uh, that was a good thing. My parents' worldview allowed me to see beyond the small world of my educational background and beyond even my peer group, many of whom were sort of had bought into that worldview from a very young age, um, so I wouldn't quite 100% agree with that. Uh, you know, your kids will always surprise you. That's part of the great thing about having them. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the great cliches that's that's true. But I uh, I like to think we exercise a little more influence than that.
0: Yeah. I so uh, one of my favorite podcasts is Russ Roberts Econ talk. Mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Um, he had Jordan Peterson on. Who I
1: have you can't get me started on Jordan Peterson. Yeah, I,
0: <laughs> I haven't made up my mind. I I'm, I'm I can't quite get him in focus about what I think about him. I do think that Ross Douthat is right that one of the things that makes them compelling, um, and maybe because it's a little self-serving for me, it was one of the things that makes Peterson compelling, and to a certain extent, to a certain extent, Todd Nahisi Coates is that mm-hmm. they're autodidacts, mm-hmm. so they didn't, they haven't been bent to the orthodoxy one way or the other, mm-hmm. and but Russ uh, Russ Roberts asked Peterson about this on a re- recent episode of Econ Talk about whether or not parents have this influence and all the rest. And Peterson just rejected it out of hand and says, this shows the the problems with the methodology mm-hmm. of and the of way we, we we measure these things mm-hmm. and all the rest. I like hearing that. I, I, I do actually think whatever you think of Jordan Peterson, and I agree with a lot of things I've
1: heard him say, but I, again... I... That's because lots of other smarter people in the past have already said them. Hey, 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 whoa.
0: <laughs> As the managing editor of the Weekly Standard... <laughs> And as a syndicated columnist, if all of a sudden we are not allowed to distill the wisdom of people who are smarter oh, than... Oh, no, us. no. Distilled, <laughs> distilled
1: wisdom, I'm always on board for. What I don't like is uh, sort of uh, grandstanding by people who've drunk their own Kool-Aid. Uh-huh. And, I, and and with with an overlay of, at least in the case of Peterson, and this is what, what sticks in my craw about him... Um, He rose to fame on the popularity of his YouTube video lectures, right? right? Which actually I've watched many of them. They're, they're good. I mean, especially compared to a lot of what you can find on YouTube. That is, that is a low bar. Exactly. But still, okay. But if, when he's, when this is brought up to him, he often says things such as, yes, well, it it just proves my point about how desperate these poor young men are that they had to find me, you know, Uh in parentheses, their savior on YouTube and, and the kind of devotion that he, cultivates is disturbing to me mm-hmm. in, in some ways. Now, having said that, I think his position on free speech and on a lot of what goes on in um, academia is spot on, and right. I am 100% behind him on that. Yeah. Um, it's probably more a problem of style, but if you've tried to... I've read his scholarly work, and I've read his recent popular book, and I'm just not getting the hero worship. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm
0: against... Uh, uh, I'm against all forms of hero worship, basically. <laughs> um, I, uh, people don't, I mean, it's, it, we're not going to get deep in the weeds on Trump, but one of the things I find fascinating is that, so I've been condemning populism for 15 years, mm-hmm. right? Like, you go back chapter and verse, lots of pieces of about condemning, uh, not condemning, but sort of rejecting excessive enthusiasm in politics for years, right? Mm-hmm. And when I was saying all these things in the context of, Obama or mm-hmm. Clinton or even to a certain extent Bush mm-hmm. got lots of positive feedback from right wingers and conservatives. You know all you know normal readers. And when you say the when you say the exact same things in the context of a certain president, now the response is how dare you? Why have you flipped? What's how have you changed? And it's a really creepy feeling to be like really pretty sure that you haven't changed all that much and that everyone else around you has. The
1: reaction of a cult member. Yeah, you've attacked the cult leader.
0: There's some of that. There is, I I, 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 you know, and I, and I don't mean this about the people who are have just a transactional understanding of Trump and then mm-hmm. delivering the things that they want and all these kinds of things, but when you have someone like Jerry Falwell Jr.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: argue, conceivably, I mean, there are only two ways to accept someone's statement: either you think they're lying or they're telling the truth, right? So I'm not sure which one's more damning. But Jerry Falwell Jr. to say that he thinks that. Jeff Sessions was a covert operative from the establishment that went in Mufti inside of the Trump campaign (laughs) in order to undermine it from within, which is more damning, that he believes that or that he doesn't believe it but he said it? I don't know the answer to that. But anyway, we don't have to get – a. we get a lot of feedback on here that we talk too much about Trump and that I'm too smug in my defiance of the current trends and all that, so we'll put that aside. (laughs) So – you have a piece in the latest weekly standard or recent weekly standard. My life is a dreamscape and they're Indians in diapers walking around and it's all <laughs> kind of weird. So, uh, but I feel like it was a recent standard about the the inclusion writers.
1: Yes, the, right? the inclusion writers that the uh, Oscar winner, Frances McDormand, uh, called for in her acceptance speech. Right. Um, Why don't you
0: explain what they are and what your objection to them is?
1: So inclusion writers are this idea that if you're a big name star, when you negotiate your contract with uh, – uh, producer to star in a film that you demand a, a gender parity. Uh, well, it can be anything, really. It can be 50% women, 20% people who are left-handed. It can be whatever you decide it is because you're the star. And the argument is that if you if this becomes the practice in Hollywood, that we'll see greater gender parity. So you'll see more, more women, more minorities, et cetera, et cetera. Um, in theory, it sounds, you know, oh, how nice. Let's all pat ourselves on the back for inclusion. And the Law professor, and maybe she's a communications professor, the, the scholar who first came up with the idea was actually thinking about minor roles. So she was right. saying, you know, we're not talking about casting Abraham Lincoln as a as a uh, woman. I mean, mm-hmm. we're not going to do that. But in these minor roles, you should actively seek out minorities. Gary Coleman <laughs> as Julius Caesar. <laughs> I would watch that. I would, I would definitely watch that. <laughs> um, so, But what, as many of these sort of basically quota systems turn into, is a free-for-all, right? Mm-hmm. So it very quickly became clear that this would be a way to impose a sort of quota system on all aspects of this, which would run right up against unions in mm-hmm. Hollywood. Because you would, uh, theoretically, what, what these uh, producers would have to do is negotiate with unions to have a certain percentage of, say, women or minorities doing certain roles on set, and that's chaos. So I think it was a, it was a perfect bit of Hollywood posturing. Um, You know, no offense to Frances McDormand, who I think is a wonderful actress and and I think was, you know, I've I've heard far worse grandstanding on on an Academy Award stage than what she did. But I also think it's a kind of act of desperation on the part of Hollywood to think that this is the solution to, to rather, you know, deeply corrupt system that has been flourishing there, you know. Yeah, Even absolutely. before Weinstein.
0: So I have a couple of reactions. First of all, in Frances, and I know you're not criticizing Francis McDormand, but in her defense, she literally admitted that she was speaking from ignorance and said that, like, I only <laughs> just heard about these things. Right? Oh, yeah,
2: exactly.
1: You know? <laughs>
0: and I, I don't know. It's just me. But if I were about to go accept an Oscar, I would not blurt out the last idea that someone put in my head right before I went on.
1: An L.A. Play. cocktail party probably Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you
0: know, you know. Thank you for this Oscar, and now let's talk about recycling unicorn poop. You know, I mean, it's just a weird sort of like maybe think it through a little bit, and you can imagine some four hands slapping foreheads when she did it. But I've been trying to figure out. I mean, with my copious free time, first of all, I love the idea of inclusion writers for diversity representation for say the Black Panther, mm-hmm. right? So right. all of a sudden yeah, half of Wakanda is white <laughs> <laughs> or whatever. But right. but uh the um. It seems to me that a, a a mischievous conservative response to this is no one's talking about calling in the state here, right? Right, right. No, these would be totally
1: voluntary. You know, sort of peer pressure.
0: And why not in a sort of a Herb a Brightbardian, right? Pre-Ben and Brightbardian mm-hmm. sense. You know, celebrate the contradictions, right? I mean, this is this is a fight between nasty unions and nasty virtue signalers. Yep let's go to Costco, get a lot of popcorn and, and watch it unfold, right? I mean, right. what's the what's the downside of that?
1: Right, because obviously the, the intent of these, the street only runs in one direction because you have the costume uh, guild, you know, or association is something like 80% female. Right. So you'd have to, you know, get some men over there and no one's talking about doing that even though the art directors guild is is the flip, it's like seven, maybe 70% male um, and there have been constant calls to get more women involved same with directing and, and producing and whatnot. So, uh, no, no, I agree. That would actually – that would be a Hollywood film I'd love to watch. It's, yeah. I mean,
0: <laughs> it seems to me that this would be at – either at the standard or NR, we should get some young kid on the beat of holding Hollywood's feet to their fo- right. to the fire about making sure that they come they follow through on this right? great – this fantastic That's idea. Great. Because if you read what Hollywood stars demand – like um, I'll give you an example. Uh, I met this guy who told who was a writer on the Back to the Future movies and he mm-hmm. told me a story about John Milius. I mm-hmm. wrote Conan, and, mm-hmm. and so maybe this is apocryphal. This is just the story that I was told. But he had a rule that when he sold a script or signed a deal with a studio, the studio had had to come to him and give him a gun as a gift. <laughs> and the studio was like, "Well, wait a second, wait a second. You know, we'll just give you the amount of the money, or we'll, you know, or we'll say give you a gift." You say, "No, no, no. I want like an ornate Beretta shotgun brought to me in a box <laughs> by this man." And you know, all the green M&M stories, all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff, don't mm-hmm. look me in the eye. There is nothing inconsistent with saying you have to have a rich bouquet of humanity working on this movie. Right. And, you know, I'm in favor of almost any political maneuvers that highlight the fact that the most rea- among the most reactionary forces in our politics are actually um, various unions and guilds and not actually conservatives. Right, right. Um, right. Um, so, I'm all in favor of blowing it all up. But before we get to more blowing it all up, I should talk to you about our first sponsor today. Sorry, that was a terrible transition. Uh, good transitions cost extra. Uh, <laughs> for those of you who don't know what Donors Trust is, it's a really important um, institution on the right for, for fighting for, for liberty, for helping people get the maximum out of their um, charitable dollars. If you use your charitable dollars to support freedom, you should know about Donors Trust. Donors Trust is the community foundation for the liberty movement. A donor-advised fund with Donors Trust lets you simplify your giving, receive excellent tax benefits, and add an extra layer of privacy, all with a partner that understands your values. With the recent tax law changes, many experts are recommending donor-advised funds, and with good reason. Donor-advised funds act as your private charitable savings account. Give now take your tax benefit, and contribute later according to your schedule. All donor-advised funds offer the same basic services. But Donors Trust is the only donor-advised fund that shares your commitment to conservative principles. So go to DonorsTrust.org dingo to access your free six reasons to use a Donors Advised Fund guide and to see for yourself why experts are recommending this fast-growing tool for charitable givers. Remnant listeners will also receive a special bonus: two additional eBooks to help you identify principle-driven charities that deserve your support. If you believe private philanthropy is the if you believe private philanthropy is the best way to strengthen civil society, Donors Trust is the partner you need to strategically meet your charitable goals. Visit DonorsTrust.org/dingo. Right now, to get your free guide on using a donor advised fund and discover the smarter way to support the conservative values you believe in, that's DonorsTrust.org/slash dingo. So I don't know if you know this, but we're trying to get this is not this is not Jordan Peterson Trumpy like hero <laughs> worship or anything like. that. All right, caveat heard. But we are <laughs> we are trying to get a sort of a a, a groundswell movement up for um, a slash dingo t-shirt marketing campaign. I will bored. buy one as soon as yeah. they're available. Excellent. Well, we, we we actually do need swag for people yeah. who come on here, yeah. you know, and either. A, I'm
1: wondering where my swag. is. Yeah, I got no swag. You for offered
0: you. me a coffee, but I, I did, but um, <laughs> but we got to work on that more. So, what is the most embarrassing thing you can tell me about working for Steve Hayes?
1: Ha! Uh, oh, where to begin? Um. No, uh, is he ever in the office? He is in the office. In fact, I just spent—we just spent several hours at a meeting today together. Yes, he's around. He is—he's well. First of all, he's a great boss, and I'm uh-huh. not just saying that as I worked for myself basically for ten years. And coming back into the office environment is always, you know, fraught occurrence. It's um, interesting, but it's a good thing too. Right? It is. I mean, like, it is a good you need thing. Human beings to yeah. be sane, yeah. And luckily, the. Human beings at the Weekly Standard are are wacky and fun, but also really, really interesting. Um, We have wonderful young reporters, and um, it's—we were talking about this before the show—that they remind us that actually we're not the 25-year-olds anymore. It's it's a little bit uh, depressing, but um, Steve's a great boss.
0: Mm. Yeah. Is it—is it distracting during these editorial meetings when he's the only one eating chicken
1: wings? (laughs) He discusses chicken wings a lot. I know he does. (laughs) It's a very—I know—becoming a you know, it's, it's the meme of the Weekly Standard, yeah. No, um, it is, you know, there there are more men than women at the uh, office there, which I'm sure all of you the... You should have
0: had an inclusion writer. I know, you know.
1: I You know, I tried to negotiate an inclusion writer, uh-huh. but I was more intent on making sure that I could, you know, have uh, quick access to all the coffee pods that they... They have a very strange amount of coffee there, but um, no, uh, so my concern was, you know, in the era of mansplainers and man interrupters and all of these supposedly obnoxious men who take charge of meetings. Um, Steve is actually stellar in this regard, um, as is Richard Starr and Robert Messenger. They're great listeners at meetings, mm-hmm. but they do guide the meeting. We have wonderful uh, story meetings every week, and uh, they're great at eliciting conversations mm-hmm. about stuff, but they're also great at stopping those conversations <laughs> when need be. So I've learned a lot already just watching how they run a meeting. You know, writers and editors are notoriously... Anxious and difficult uh, bunch of people, you know, herding cats, et cetera, et cetera. Um, they do it very well, um, and I think it's it's because he's a writer himself. he's, yeah. a, he's a reporter first, so um, yeah, no complaints yet. But you know, I've only been there a few weeks, so yeah. And,
0: and, <laughs> and we'll see what you say when we turn the mics off. But um, so I haven't been to a proper editorial. I've been to a couple of meetings around NR in recent months, but I are recent in the last year or so, but. I don't go to the editorial meetings anymore because they're Mm -hmm. up in New York Mm -hmm. and and no one wants to see me and no one wants to pay for me to take a train up and I'm fine with it and that's okay.
1: That's a cry for help. It is. No, no, no. It's fine. (laughs) I mean,
0: um, I've tried to stay out of NR office politics because um, I like office politics and it's the kind of thing that can be seductive and you start Mm -hmm. caring about things that- It can take over your life. You you don't care about, you shouldn't care about, you know, and that's, you know, one of the piece of advice I try to give young people is, you know, don't worry about small status issues mm-hmm. um, because they really are small.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But um, true story. So I think it was my second editorial meeting ever. Maybe this is why I don't get invited back anymore. It was, it was full. It was back when Dusty Rhodes, mm-hmm. uh, Praiseby's name, was still the president of NR. It was early in Rich's days as the editor. And Kudlow was there. You know, it was sort of a greatest hits, you know, Rhodes yeah. Gallery kind of thing. And we're going around the table uh, at, at National Review. We have these uh, the section called the Week. We have these little paragraphs, mm-hmm. right? Where you write up little things, and everyone is supposed to propose issues for the week. And it got to Mike Patemra, and Mike Patemra, who's an interesting guy. He had there was some um, movie that some art. He loves art house movies, right? And he goes, "I thought this was a f- fascinating treatment of sexuality in which." Um, It proved that one can deal with full frontal nudity and sexual congress on film without trying to arouse the masturbatory desires of the average filmgoer. And and I just couldn't help myself. And I just said, speak for yourself. (laughs) (laughs) And some people laughed and some people looked at me like, "Hmm,
1: maybe we shouldn't have hired you. Some ran to HR (laughs) to file a complaint. There there was no
0: HR at at NR, um, at least that I'm aware of. But. So you've written a bunch about
1: millennials and capitalism. Are yes. You, how worried should we be? We should be a little worried, actually, as as conservatives. And, and this is, you know, even libertarianish leaning folks. Um, the data isn't good. And it's not just in the U.S. I mean, if you look at U.K. data, uh, younger voters are far more left-leaning than they used to be. And I know that if you look at, you know voting turnout, the young still tend not to vote as, as much as the old, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But demographically speaking, there's trouble brewing mm-hmm. for conservatives in terms of getting a message out there. And I did this piece for the Weekly Standard a few months ago, um, basically trying to answer the question, what do millennials think of capitalism? And, uh, you know, or do they take it for granted? And I was shocked, actually, after interviewing uh, a lot of millennials and going to a couple meetings and reading publications like Jacobin and whatnot, uh-huh. that we're not making our pitch for capitalism in the right way. Yeah, it's not that we're or not, at all, or at all. And you know, they don't. They, a lot of them talked about what they learned in high school and college, and most of them heard about socialism, communism. They they heard the history of these ideas, often presented in a way that airbrushed out the um, mm. naughty bits, as you'd say. And they didn't hear that same story about capitalism, and that's disturbing to me. And I think, um, again, as a historian, I'm always looking at the things that we're not. Uh, conveying about our history. Mm -hmm. And I really feel like that's one area where there needs to be a thoughtful educational push by conservatives, not the heavy handed, you know, this is the textbook we want to replace, you know, those battles have been going on in the culture wars for decades. And I think to little avail, honestly, Mm -hmm. they they come down to resource allocation, uh, and legislative battles that don't end up telling the story. We have to tell the story better yeah um, and we have to reach the young younger people who need to hear that story because when they hear it, they understand it and um and I think the 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 example you can see in pol- from political life is in the wake of all the me too stuff, the reassessment of young women of the Clinton years yeah, yeah. So I feel like there's a moment coming for the story of capitalism and free enterprise where young people are going to face that. Anyone who is – any of them who are dealing with student loan payments right now are already in that world. You know, they've got three different jobs and they still can't make their rent with their payments. And, and they're, they're fairly bleak opportunity opportunities ahead of them. So they're starting to hit that wall, um, both the millennials and, and the generation or two after them. So, yeah, we have to tell a better story.
0: Yeah, well, that's – I mean – Fortunately, there's this fantastic new book coming out, (gasps) Suicide suicide of the West. Excellent title. Basically makes that exact story, (laughs) makes that exact argument. The analogy I keep using with people is, because I believe we should teach all the bad stuff that happened in history. We shouldn't whitewash that. But the analogy, I don't know if I've used it on this podcast, but the analogy I always use is, remember in the movie Goldfinger? Mm -hmm. Goldfinger doesn't want to rob Fort Knox. He wants to irradiate the gold to take it off the market for 10,000 years so his existing stockpile becomes incredibly more valuable, right? Mm -hmm. That's basically my argument about what uh, uh, the sort of the uh, new class types in in the universities and and in Hollywood, what they're doing is the Howard Zinn argument Mm -hmm. is the only legitimate story to tell is all the crappy stuff that happened. Exactly. Right? And so... I don't mind people talking about the downside of Christopher Columbus. I don't mind people talking about how the Indians got screwed. Mm-hmm. But that's
1: not the only story. Well, mainly right? they got smallpox. But... Yeah. Well, so, yeah. <laughs> but,
0: you know, this, it's, it's the only narrative that's right is right. the narrative that says capitalism is bad, America is bad, the West is bad, yeah. and all the rest. And they're trying to make radioactive any other narrative. Mm-hmm. And and so I agree with you that the millennial thing is right. I mean, I just saw victims of communism, which I follow on Twitter because I... You know, it keeps me from cutting myself. Um, had a, um, they linked to some poll
1: uh, that one in two millennials would prefer to live under socialism or communism. Yes, now. and that's it's a twofold problem. One is that they don't understand what capitalism has done for right. them. They also don't really understand socialism or communism. There, you know, there's a I don't know if you've heard of these. There's these kids book kids. I don't know tween. Books uh, from many years ago that in, published in the UK called "Horrible Histories." Yeah, 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 yeah they're yeah. great, and I wish that we had a version of that because, unlike Howard Zinn, um, it sort of takes all the interesting worst of human nature moments in in the in the British past and just makes them engaging and funny. But it shows it all. I mean, yeah, it's yeah, yeah. warts and all. It's, it's very nonpartisan in, in that sense. My my boys loved them. I mean, they've yeah. read and reread them over and over. We don't really even have that kind of sardonic distance from our own mistakes, right? I mean, right. there's some sort of deep insecurity in Americans about their own past, maybe because it's so short compared to other countries. But I think younger generations do not understand either because it hasn't been taught or it's uh, they haven't bothered to seek it out the truth about the number of people who died under communism under any authoritarian regime, yeah. it's abstract to them. It needs yeah. to be made real. Yeah. So what concerns
0: me is that there are parts of the right now that are, rather than pushing back on the stuff that the left is doing with university stuff, they're basically buying into its premises from a quote-unquote right-wing perspective, right? And like mm-hmm. this booing of um, the immigration, you know, I don't you know if you saw this, so there was at CPAC, mm-hmm. this Moderate Dem radio guy was on a panel, and he said, "Yeah, you know, I lived in Mexico for a while, and I found that a lot of Mexicans had, you know, pretty conservative values." Booed the audience. Booze. <sighs> he then says, "You know, one day I was in a courthouse, and I saw that there was a swearing-in ceremony for new American for new immigrants, legal immigrants, obviously, mm-hmm. right? And it was just one of those beautiful, touching ceremonies." Audience boos. He then says. And you know what's interesting is the Democrats, they set up tables outside these, bla- these swearing-in ceremonies and they try to convince people to join the Democratic Party once they become citizens and voters. Mm-hmm. Republicans would be smart to do that too. Loud booing. And this infuriates me, right? Mm-hmm. This idea that, you know, for, we're not talking about illegal immigrants. And I'm at National Review. We got pretty strict policies on immigration. But this idea that we don't want new citizens... Mm-hmm. In our party, or in our movement, is so shamefully—I mean, forget, forget
1: bigotry. It's just stupid. And it's you know? short-sighted, just in terms of the health of a party long term.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I thought the whole point of a party was to invite more people to be members of it, right? right. And you just see this more and more all over the place. And just—I I think the demographic stuff about about uh, the browning of America, you know, that diversity goals, mm-hmm. value, all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff, which said that you know, the rising new majority arguments. I always thought they were flawed because, first of all, big chunks of Hispanics self-ID is white. Big right. chunks of Asians basically have a... do not see themselves as minorities as they become right. affluent and all the rest. But at the same time, it is a, it's a frigging scandal that Indian Americans are the most democratic ethnic group exactly. in this country. I mean, that's, exactly. that's nuts, you know? Yeah. But anyway, sometimes you just feel like you just got to get away from all of this nonsense. And <laughs> when you do, one thing you can do is go to tripping.com. Um, as oh, so <laughs> <laughs> as, uh, as long-time listeners know, Tripping is one of my favorite sponsors of this podcast, in part because I use it. In fact, we are looking, uh, the Goldberg family is looking to get the um, hell out of Dodge, to use a technical term, um, for spring break. And we haven't figured out all the details. And we've been looking um, at all of these sites, and we started to use Tripping, and it's great. What Tripping does is it, as you know, it, it conglomerates, agglomerates, combines, uh, sifts through all of these different websites that um let you rent a home away right and one of the great things about having a renting a house particularly if you got kids is sometimes you don't want to take especially if you got little kids you don't want to take these these little viking barbarians to a restaurant where other people will see them because you know they're going to start having sword fights with the breadsticks and setting fire to things and and lord knows what else and you know Maybe maybe one of them thinks that the uh, urinal mint is candy. I mean, you just you don't. Sometimes you just don't want to take little kids to uh, out to a restaurant, but you want to feed them and you want to have a fun family time where you can all be together. And things like you know, home rental is a great way to do it. Also, if you travel with dogs, as I often do, because that's how I roll, um, you can search for houses that accept pets, and it's a great way to travel because hotels are super judgy about dogs. And I am I could talk for hours about how much about the anti-canine bigotry in this country, but I'm not going to do that. So, don't visit a ton of different sites. On Tripping.com, one search lets you compare every home from the world's top vacation rental sites in one place to find the best deal on your perfect vacation rental. Vacation rentals offer more. More privacy, more space for everyone under one roof and more choices with fully stocked kitchens, extra bedrooms, and even hot tubs. All the comforts of home and then some best of all at tripping.com you can join the millions of travelers who find more savings with rates of up to 80 percent less than traditional hotel rooms so if you're planning spring break on the beach in florida tripping.com can't wait to swim in lake tahoe this summer tripping.com dreaming of sitting on the deck of a smoky mountains cabin tripping.com need some place to carve up a body tripping.com no that's not in there i apologize about that one this year Save time and money when you book the vacation home of your dreams. Visit our special URL so they know what we what, that we sent you. That's tripping.com slash dingo. Tripping.com slash dingo. Find your perfect vacation rental. Tripping.com slash d-i-n-g-o. All right. So one last, we're in the home stretch here. You mentioned er, uh, earlier in in. Passing about young women and the, uh, um, what do you call it, uh, the Me Too movement mm-hmm. and all that. Uh, some listeners know I have some deep investments in the past, which I'm perfectly ha- I would be perfectly happy to jettison for all time. Um, in some of this, but what did you think about Monica Lewinsky's attempt to join the Me Too thing?
1: Um, I thought it was opportunistic uh-huh. in some ways. I mean, look, I think the. Public opinion surrounding her particular circumstance um, is has changed. You know, she's no longer seen as she was branded so unfairly by the Clintons as as kind of this crazy young woman. Mm. Um, that said, I, I, she's actually our age, right? She's we're, we're all about the same yeah. age. And when she was avidly pursuing a relationship with the president of the United States, she was old enough to know exactly what she was doing. And she was old enough to make choices for herself. She was clearly in an an unequal power relationship, but that was precisely the thing that was appealing about the man she was pursuing. I mean, so um, she was... Treated badly, um, certainly in, in public opinion. Her life was ruined. I mean, mm-hmm. there's no doubt about that. So I have a lot of sympathy for her. I admire that she's trying to do something about bullying, and I think she's she's had some good things to say about that. But this, the Me Too movement's uh, the conceit of the Me Too movement that I think is becoming more and more clear is that it doesn't have clearly defined boundaries or principles about what – and this is because – society doesn't have clear principles about how men and women should behave, particularly in the office. Uh, We've been arguing about this for decades. And there isn't an easy solution, because uh, the Me Too movement wants to ignore the fact that there are women who pursue relationships with men in power for their own advantage. Mm -hmm. Just like, you know, certainly the law for a very long time, and and culturally, we ignored the fact that there were men who preyed on women with less power. So the story is a lot more complicated. And I... I get what she's trying to do, but I was not persuaded.
0: Yeah, so I, I, I'm sort of with you. I have no, I've never had much interest in beating up on Monica yeah. Lewinsky. No, exactly. Um, and but I will say what I find just as a matter of some frustration is somewhere in my attic, back when I thought, you know, back when I thought it was important to save such things, I've got from the late 1990s probably two supermarket boxes of VHS tapes from my appearances on. Various cable television shows twenty years ago, where I was arguing
2: exactly
0: not sort of what she was arguing, exactly what she's arguing in that Vanity Fair piece. That because remember, I went to an all women's college. I got drenched in this stuff. I uh, I knew this. You sort know of,
1: the matriarchy. Yeah, <laughs> I, well, I, knew, you know, I mean,
0: as the Rosa Parks of gender integration, there's some things you pick up. And I'm kidding that I'm not denigrating Rosa Parks, but you know. The Clinton, the the federal government's own sexual harassment policy. I mean, I used to quote it from memory. Was simply by virtue of the disproportionate power. Blah 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 blah. I was in college during the Clarence Thomas stuff, mm-hmm. and so and the for for twenty years, the defense of Monica Lewinsky was that she was this empowered woman, all this kind of stuff, and it does feel like ah. My publicist says this bullying thing didn't really work, but this Me Too thing is hot right now. Catching on, yeah. And maybe we should glom onto that. And at the same time, it's such a sad life, yeah. you know. And I, 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 and I, I do think she's got two things working against her. One is she wasn't the president's mistress, you know. No. If if they had slept together, it would have a little. It would have a little more like French glamour kind of thing. And also, she was so rich. Mm-hmm that she never had the incentives to just go out and get a job and move on with her life. And, and it's funny, the only reason I, one of the only reasons I bring this up is I've seen, you know, Monica Lewinsky is an extreme example, and it's unfair to, to focus on her. But I've seen lots of young people in Washington over the last 20 years in green rooms, and not just young people, middle-aged people too, mm-hmm. but it's particularly pernicious with young people. Young people who, for whatever reason, get five, ten minutes of fame Mm -hmm. And it goes to their head, and all of a sudden they think all the bookers and all the producers who are sucking up to them are being sincere, and they think it is totally normal for reporters from the New York Times and Washington Post to call them. And when – however long that limelight lasts, once it goes away, it gets really cold really, really fast. Mm -hmm. And so these these Parkland shooter kids going all over the place – Really thinking it's normal. Well, of course I deserve to be on Bill Maher's show. Of course I deserve to be on the Today Show. Mm-hmm. That's not going to last forever. And some of these, I mean, like movie star kids, singers, when they get famed. I mean, Justin Bieber, the second Justin Bieber got a pet monkey, we knew he was going oh, to go south, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't want to delegitimize these, guys, these kids for their being traumatized or what they went through in Parkland. It doesn't mean they are automatically right about gun control. But I think it's grotesque, sort of, the way the media is using them.
1: Yes, it's and it's tough because on the, uh, I think what's gr- the most grotesque about it is the media praising themselves for giving them a platform, right? 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 right, right. Because the kids themselves, I think some of them are well intentioned, and I agree. I think some of them are probably just postponing a moment of dealing with the real trauma that they will inevitably have to deal with. But the self congratulatory tone that the media has adopted about the media towards right. these children is the thing that it's really grating. I yeah. agree. I mean, how old are your kids? My kids are 11 and a half. Okay. They're twins. Yeah. So
0: So they're both 11 and one yeah. yeah. um, they Yeah. Well, there's a works. minute there's a minute of difference there. Are they identical?
1: They're fraternal. Oh, okay. Fraternal. There's yeah.
0: Otherwise Charles Murray is going to come out with his calipers and start doing all you sorts know, of studies.
1: You know, I I do conduct <laughs> behavioral experiments, though, uh-huh. because they're, you know, they they have the exact same cir- circumstances, but they're different personalities. Uh-huh. And it is fascinating to see what works on one is the other one is completely you know, yeah. immune to being, you
0: know, Well, that's, that's a big part of Charles's point, is right, is that, mm-hmm. that you know, think about how hard it is to change your own kid's personality when, yeah. when you want to, right? Right. Um, and the deviation between... The personalities of siblings is greater, and mm-hmm. sometimes than the deviation of just two random kids. Exactly, right? but like, I mean, heaven forbid your kids are a little younger than these kids—but like, the idea of just shoving them out, you know, I, on TV for weeks on end.
1: No, is and insane it's insane to me. It's it's an interesting moment if you have. I, well, it's an interesting moment to have kids approaching or in the throes of adolescence right now. Between you know the school shooting news and the Me Too stuff and all the issues surrounding consent, it's it's. A challenge for yeah. parents. I mean, how do you talk to young women about, I mean, you have a daughter, mm. you, you know, women should know how to defend themselves, not just, you know, by using their intelligence to get out of situations that have clearly gone, you know, off the rails, but also physically, mm. they should have a even a base level of well, self-defense but skills.
0: But that's sort of easy, easy for you to say, because you're, you're, Kind of like a vigilante by night, right? I mean, you're kind of like you're kind of like Batwoman, right? You were at a level seventeen Aikido, whatever.
1: No, uh, so I'm I will test for my black belt in Aikido this year. Yes, um, that's very. Uh, cool. It's fun. It's a great dojo. Actually, um, there's lots of Washington types who train there, uh-huh. both from agencies and sort of pundit types. But you step into the dojo, and it sounds goofy, but. Everybody, it's not about nobody asks that that perennial Washington question. What do you do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know, you'll train with people for years, and and they go on these consulting trips for weeks at a time, and come back a little battered. And you're like, hmm, you're a consultant, aren't uh-huh. so wow. it's it's a great, it's a that very McKinsey non- consultant is rough <laughs> stuff. Yeah, you know? it's very, her passport has a lot of stamps on it. But it's a very non Washington space. Uh-huh. Um, but we we do sometimes uh, train women in self-defense, just basics of self-defense, even the ones who don't want to do the Aikido training. Uh-huh. And, you know, there are just very simple things that you don't think about until probably it's too late. So I'm a huge advocate of young women learning um, any martial art, really, but especially one like Aikido, where it's not about strength. It's actually uh-huh. about, of you know, balance-taking. My sons also train in Aikido. It's helped them on the playground. You know, they they can get away from someone who's trying to rough them up without uh-huh. hurting the person. And But especially for young women, I think it's really important. Uh-huh.
0: And Aikido's this... It's, you know, most of what I know about Aikido is from man the man of the high castle. castle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um,
1: also, we don't look that the women don't look like her when we're training or get much more sweaty. And- <laughs> uh-huh. um,
0: but it's not. And also and also I have to say from Walking Dead. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, they use some. It, 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 is, it, it is basically a purely defensive martial art, right?
1: Basically, we do learn some. We do some strikes and grabs, but uh-huh. it's very cooperative. It's not competitive like taekwondo and and some jujitsu and other ones are. In the sense that we don't have tournaments. Um...
0: Do you know the five finger exploding
1: heart technique? Of course, okay. yes. Well, Let's... I mean, I'm going to try it on on Jack later. So be... <laughs> <laughs> look at him smile. He's ready. Yeah. Um, but it's very much about the whole theory. Is unlike other martial arts where you want to pummel your opponent into the ground. You use your opponent's anger and energy against them by mm-hmm. getting out of the way or having them kind of fall or so it's a lot of throw throws you have to learn how to take falls and
0: which no um, offense makes a lot more sense for women right
1: yes it does um no i mean i was in class last night and one of the guys i was training with is i mean he's a huge guy um and i had to take his balance i had to get him to the ground in a way that you know preserved my own balance and you can do it if you're with training but you can also even just learn basic self-defense we practice some of those sometimes someone comes up and grabs you how do you out of it. Um, Have you had
0: to use it in real life?
1: I've never, thank Knockwood, I've never had to use it in real life, but what it has given me um, after several years of training is a much better sense of awareness Uh of space and and, uh, which is helpful if you live in a city as I do, but um, no, I just, it's great. It's also and I think it's really important for anyone who lives inside the Beltway and does anything even remotely related to politics or intellectual work, it's just completely alien from all of that and it's a way to turn off that Constant um, thing that's going in your mind, and you know what also gives focus. you pretty
0: good situa- situational awareness is is growing up in New York City in the 1970s and getting mugged a bunch of times before you. Were, <laughs> That'll
1: well, do it. You, you should know. come to the dojo. We. Yeah. Can- <laughs>
0: um, but no, it was. It always shocked me how, like in college, I'd bring friends to New York City who'd never been, and it was weird how something they were giving off would attract weirdos or. Tufts or whatever mm-hmm. to give them a hard time, and they would walk right past. And it's not like, I mean, I'm a, I'm a tall, I'm a big guy, but I'm not like I don't look like I'm a, some sort of badass or anything mm-hmm. like that. But just there's this sort of game face that you get on the New York City subway or when you're walking through you know bad neighborhoods at night that I never knew I actually learned mm-hmm. until I saw people who didn't have it. You know,
1: it's a good skill to have. Actually, I guess that yeah.
0: awareness that presence. Yep. So one last question about the real world stuff. So. Um I know you were self-deprecating about how you don't look like the girl from the man in the high castle but <laughs> you were you were you were a lovely and talented and attractive person and Thank you. In in the real world have you had to experience a lot of gropy creepy dudes?
1: Yeah, look there's there're handsy guys everywhere, right? Yeah. Um and there isn't a woman in this town who can't tell you a story. Sure. Um so when I read these me too stories I think yeah, okay. What I haven't experienced is the emotional trauma. Yeah. So let's – there will be no names or even events listed particularly, but, you know, there was a big annual event that a large organization always sponsors. And someone – a big donor who goes to that event um, was getting a little handsy with me in mm-hmm. the cocktail hour before the dinner began. And I said – you know, I stepped away. And the second time the hand came up, I said, no. And I walked away. And I didn't even think twice about it. I mean, yeah. later someone asked me, you know, oh, by the way, he's handsy, you know, uh-huh. get the Whisper Network does help other ladies. I said, oh, yeah, it was fine. I assumed he was drunk. Yeah. But the idea that then I would never be able to function in, right, in right, right. that space is that's the part that concerns me, especially about these younger women. They seem to believe. Um, and actually, I think some of them genuinely feel like they cannot walk down the street without the threat of rape or murder imminent. Yeah. imminent rape or murder if a if a man you know interacts with them and you know it's the death of courtship and flirting it's the it's it's unfortunately going to have i think pernicious long-term consequences for women in the workplace because men now are on super high alert and on edge as they have to be it's unfortunate and i do think that that's where the women learning some A little more Mm tough-mindedness in the office. I mean, men get teased too, and men get, Mm -hmm. men, this is not talked about a lot in me too. And actually, I have a, I have a colleague who is fairly well known, and he told me a ridiculous, ridiculously funny story when he was young and working, um, As a teenager, and there was this wealthy older woman who had come to the place where he worked, and they had to do whatever she demanded. And she basically harassed him sexually. And he kind of told us this funny story. He wasn't traumatized. I was like, you know, if you were a woman, (laughs) you would be all over the New York Times with this Me Too moment. So it's not as if men don't confront these uh, issues. So, yeah, I've had that happen. But it's never been – honestly, I don't consider it – Harassment. I mm-hmm. think, you know, a guy makes a move, you tell him no, he backs off. That's the end of it. Mm-hmm. That's true. And look, he wasn't my boss. He right. had no control over me. It's different in the workplace. And I do think the rules exist for a reason in the workplace. Yeah. I,
0: you know. So that's sort of one of the reasons why I brought this up is that when all of these allegations, when all this stuff came out about Fox a year and a half ago, mm-hmm. right?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I think it's something of a minor journalistic scandal that the press reported it solely as if this was a Fox problem. Of course. Right. Yes. And it was only after the Harvey Weinstein thing happened a year later That they're like, oh my gosh, it's all society. (laughs) Everybody's doing this. They're perfectly happy to make it about Fox when it was bad for Fox. And and, and Fox has been cleaning house ever since and we don't have to get into all the weeds about all of that. But I got to say, and this is what I wanted to ask you about, is first of all, I've come around to believe that you really have to have zero tolerance because my view of it is, and this is a gross simplification, but it was particularly a problem in New York where you had these unbelievably attractive 20-something girls some of whom didn't want to be... Some of them wanted to be journalists. Mm-hmm. Some of them just wanted to be famous for being pretty. Mm-hmm. Right? Well, weather girl, folks, model. Yeah, yeah no, <laughs> it's a thing. And and, some of the, and, and, a, and a subset of those women were willing to sort of sexual... have a transactional understanding of, mm-hmm. of some of these things. And some of the other women, they weren't necessarily going to sleep their way to the top or the middle or whatever, but they were perfectly happy to flirt a lot.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So you get a bunch of insecure middle-aged dudes who find out that Ted is sleeping with so-and-so and and bragging about having a great time. The other middle-aged dudes, their reaction to that is, oh my gosh, they must all be into this. And some of them are, and a lot of them aren't. And once you send those signals out, Mm -hmm. the whole place goes to hell, right? And so that's why you have to have a zero
1: tolerance. Well, And why the other men, the one part of the Me Too movement I have liked is that I think men now have a really good awareness of what they should have done is take Ted aside and go, Ted, you idiot, stop, yeah, right? no, no. <laughs> yeah. well, And this is this is one of my great
0: frustrations about when this all this stuff was unfolding at Fox in 2016. It's like, I was completely floored by it. Um, and I was like, I don't think I give off this vibe as this, like, not one of the guys, I tell dirty jokes, but, like, no one confided in me that this stuff was going on. I was like, do I really have to read about this in the paper, you know? But, so, my theory is, is that, you know, Put aside the actual rapists, right? Mm-hmm. So Harvey Weinstein, you should go to jail as far as I can yes. tell, so, right? But a lot of these dudes, if you listen to the f- sort of... the sort of Not the serious feminists who write about this stuff, who understand it's a lot about power and all this kind of stuff. But in my experience, most of these guys are really unbelievably insecure mm-hmm. men. And th- have you met... I mean, this, I don't even know how to ask this question. There doesn't seem to be a, a big problem with sort of... With confident men right. doing this kind of thing, right? And right. it seems to me that really insecure men should be easier to sort of rebuff. Yes, you know that was always my mom's thing. Yeah, like, you know, just like, and I Swat won't. What am I? Yeah. <laughs> um, and um, I mean, I, I think my mom probably kicked a great number. Of I men am in the sure groin. she did. Um, <laughs> She's awesome. <laughs> and, uh, um, but in your experience, I mean, is it? Is it? it what am I missing about? you know, it just seems to me that it's just so obvious to me that these are guys who had trouble with girls in high school, trouble with girls in college. And now, because they got a little bit of power, they think that it compensates for all of these things and Mm -hmm. they want to make up for lost time.
1: I think there's definitely something of that to it. I would say from the woman's perspective, it's always helpful. I mean, what I always did in situations was tell another, I, I mean, I would obviously tell one of my female friends who worked mm. there, but I almost always sought out a male friend who was on staff or, you know, and told him too. Yeah, I was like, Hey, you know, ugh, this happened. It's, it's good. And I think women need to do that more often because like you said, I mean, I think a lot of really good men in the workplace have no clue. They're not, maybe not as observant. They're not, they're not in the same sort of gossip network that right. maybe the female staff members are. Women should speak out, not just, you know, uh, not run crying to HR to file a lawsuit, but if something minor happens and it just made you feel bad and you feel uncomfortable, tell someone. Yeah. And get, and tell another man too. Um, I think that's important. I always did that. I mean, and, and it's not even just about sexual harassment. I'll tell a story about Bill Crystal, which I'm sure he doesn't remember, but it was hugely. The octopus? No, it was just. (laughs) It was such a moment where so I saw all hands. No, no, no. So, this was a this was a moment where there was a there was a kind of meeting about tech bioethics type stuff. Um, I was I had kind of just started out in Washington. I didn't know many people. I was part of this small group and I happened to be the only young woman at this meeting at the table. And someone else at the meeting who was, you know, pretty senior and important just turned to me before, right as the meeting started and said, you know, go get me some coffee. And Bill Crystal, who was sitting across, actually burst into laughter and said, you've got to be kidding me. And, I mean, he just it didn't even – he didn't even hesitate. And he's like, you've got to get your own coffee, man. And it was just this moment where I was so grateful. I barely knew him at the yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. I was just so grateful for someone's – he saw that that was inappropriate and yeah. just, he just was like, no. And this guy was shamed enough to get up and get his own coffee. It's not a big deal, right? It's a small yeah. moment, but that's something where I think men, especially men who ha- exercise some power and authority, those little things matter. Like, yeah. those things matter. Um, and, you know, 20 years later, I still remember that. I, yeah. And that's important, those those sort of moments of... Um, it's not protecting women. It's standing up for equality for men and women, right? Yeah. I mean, that's... Well, also, I mean,
0: there's just... Obviously, there was a gender frequency to that yes or I, I presume that you read it as one right sure but you know washington is full of jackass men um in particular who i mean look i mean i i was a i've interned in exotic places in a lot and i and i <laughs> you know i was an intern here at ai 25 years ago and
1: that's when it was like the set of survivors. You know? It was. It was. I very mean, cushy now, right?
0: Um, and that's why I was really worried when they demolished the old AI building that they were going to find all the stuff, all the skulls I buried. But, um, <laughs> I have, I mean, I, I don't want to rat out some people, but I mean, you know, on Capitol Hill, mm-hmm. think tanks, stories of, of men where it's not necessarily sexism. It's just jackassery writ large that has, Male-female facets, they're different than male-male, mm-hmm. male, but, like, I mean, I'll tell you one story. I know a guy who um, um, was in an elevator with Alan Keyes back when Alan Keyes was still a big deal, mm-hmm. right? And he was hosting a Ooh, TV ouch. show. Ouch, Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, for all I know, Alan Keyes has a sandwich board, you know, and is walking around someplace screaming the end is nigh now. But uh, Alan Keyes was standing by the elevator buttons in... At, at the old NET National Empowerment Television Building, and there was an intern or a young person in the far corner. And Keyes says, That button's not gonna press itself.
1: <laughs> no.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, no all sorts of those kinds of stories. Um, I mean the, the the rank humiliations that I've put up I put up with, you know, the, the soul crushing things that I did. And this gets to a, one piece of advice I always give and Jack has heard me give it a thousand times. But for interns or young people when they come to Washington, particularly if you work on campaigns, mm-hmm. don't immediately get an attitude about being asked to do crappy work. Because for busy people, the what happens is they want problems in their life solved. Mm-hmm. And so at first, if they ask you to get a cup of coffee, do it well and do it happily. Mm-hmm. Get dry cleaning, right? Shame on the boss for being that kind of guy. But okay, you know, but... And, and Jack has kept count. I've asked him to get me coffee twice in, in four years, mm-hmm. um, or no, two years, I should say. Um, time.
1: <laughs> and time. Um, You've got the Buddha as an assistant. You know, pretty much, yeah, pretty <laughs> much,
0: um, And what happens is, you know, like, the more you solve problems quickly and pleasantly, the more a busy person who employs you thinks... This guy solves problems for me, and right. they are giving you more yeah. and more, more and more responsibility. Mm-hmm. And lots of people short circuit great opportunities by getting an ego about being asked to do scut work in the beginning. Mm-hmm. When really, what it is is it's an initiation process, right? You know. Um, but uh, on the flip side, there are people who really in Washington, and I'm sure in Hollywood, you
1: know, and elsewhere, just enjoy humiliating young people. Yes, you know? they do, and they think they're teaching them a valuable lesson, right? But they choose their humiliations uh, with a specific intent, which is to shame them. Right. Or to, you know, just to make them... To prove remind- they can do it. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, the don't you know who I am problem, right? Yes, yeah. there's a lot of... And
0: I will... When the microphones are off, I'll tell you some stories about that. <laughs> um, okay, final question. I've, you've been more than generous with your time. Um, and and I know... I mean, I'm sure there's something that needs to be done at the Weekly Standard. Uh, clearing out the chickens. I I've got
1: my underlings taken care yeah, of <laughs> <laughs>
0: And in fact, the old blog f- that became the Weekly Substandard was called Galley Slaves, I believe. That's right. Yeah. It did.
1: It started out as Galley Slaves.
0: So, um, And my wife was calling the Weekly Standard the substandard 15 years before anyone came up with that. She's ahead of the curve on many things. That, <laughs> that niche podcast. Um, so a question I haven't asked people in a little while, um, but it used to be sort of standard, is what is the one thing about Washington, either in your experience, that surprised you? or that would surprise other people who think they understand
1: what's going on here? Oh, that's a good question. I would say I, this is going to sound like – it's going to sound ridiculous and Pollyanna, Pollyanna-ish, but I have to say it's true, and maybe it's my – I'm still on the high of a new job where I actually like my colleagues. and um, It's how well-intentioned and hardworking many people are here mm-hmm. because they really care about ideas. And I think um, it can be a shock if you're in this world for a long time to have a conversation with someone and, you know, you're shocked to find they don't know the names of the Supreme Court justices. And you think, that's a travesty. You really should know what they're doing. You know, you kind of end up drinking the Kool-Aid by default. But I really feel like this idea of a corrupt swamp, we've been telling a lot of stories about some of the corruptions of the swamp, and they're all true. Mm. But there's another side to it, yeah. too, which is that that wonderful go getter problem solving entrepreneurial American spirit that you know Europeans look down their noses at us for being unsophisticated for holding. but I still believe that there's a lot of that in Washington, and you see it in the young people who come mm-hmm. year after year after you give the interns the lectures about how to dress appropriately in the office and right. you know take them around town and and you see their energy so that the fact that I can still say that after having been here since. Nineteen ninety-five. I still think that's true, and that gives me hope.
0: Yeah. Well, I think that's fair. K Street, it's it's a little different.
1: Well, there are certain sections of the city that just cannot be included in this description. (laughs) That's fair. That would would be my only caveat there. Anyway,
0: Christine, thank you very much for coming. We really appreciate it.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Okay, I've... uh... Escorted the uh, lovely and talented Christine Rosen out of the building, and um, I was a little bummed that we didn't get too deep into the weeds on the eugenics stuff. But I got this uh, sense from her that she, uh, when she asked me to explain what post millennial and pre millennial Christianity were, I got the sense that she was not interested in talking about this at any great length, so I let it go.
2: Yeah, I mean, you you have a tendency to just talk about eugenics to anyone who will listen, and even to people who won't. It's Grabbing true. People off the street and just. Rambling on about the uh, American Economic Association.
0: It can be it can be very awkward when you um when people hear you out of context at the Starbucks talking about how the coolie cannot outwork the American the white <laughs> man, but he can underlive him. Um, which again, not my line. It's from E. A. Ross. So I guess got back from uh, University of Kentucky Knoxville, uh, Tennessee. Tennessee wasn't it Tennessee? You what did I say?
2: You said University of Kentucky Knoxville i apologize
0: um the the
2: you're gonna, you're gonna start a border war
0: <laughs> university uh, it's funny i, just, I was because i was talking about the tv show justified and i was talking anyway that's you know here or there as you can tell i'm pretty bleary-eyed but um i had a lovely time at the university of tennessee knoxville and um you know my normal response when people want me to do a new speech is you can have a good speech or you can have a new speech but i i um did this thing on the history and future of conservatism. And I was expecting to get a lot more blowback from people. But instead, um, it was a very, you know, it was, I don't know, 150, 175 people in the audience, probably half and half students and community people. And uh, um, very nice bunch of people. Lots of remnant listeners were there, which was kind of cool. Also, over the weekend, I was a speaker at a very famous... Political organization that picks out free market candidates to run for Congress, but the whole thing was off the record, so people are going to have to guess what it was. But it was nice to run into a whole bunch of people who are also um, remnant listeners. So our our reach is extending further and further. Did uh, you knock any of them over? I did not knock anybody over. Okay. Uh, why
2: would I knock them over? Because you ran into them.
0: Ah, uh, yes. That's that's that's
2: as one of my uh, it's one of my worst dad jokes, as they say. Yeah. Just wait till you have kids; you'll have a lot more. <laughs> that's um, what I. That's the sense I get.
0: And uh, so anyway, uh, things for the – oh, so I don't know if you saw this, but on Twitter, Dana Perino, all praise be upon her, the lovely and talented Dana Perino, ran a Twitter poll about what book they should discuss for their next podcast book club. And the three possibilities were the Jordan Peterson 12 Lessons book, um, our friend David Bonson's Crisis of Responsibility book, and some book called The Sweet of the West. Mm. Um, and I find this, I mean, I have no problem losing the poll to Jordan Peterson or whatever. But they at least could have spelt the title Suicide of the West correctly. <laughs> um, but if listeners are interested in such things, and uh, you can find her Twitter poll, by all means vote for... Uh, Suicide of the West, or the Suite of the West. We can, you know, um,
2: that's the hotel you will. That's the ideal hotel room to stay in to read Suicide of the West. That's correct. That's correct.
0: Um, Particularly if, sort of, the death Death of Marat. You want to open a vein in the bathtub,
2: (laughs) but um,
0: that's the cover I wanted. Was a picture of the Statue of Liberty in a bathtub, a a la the Death of Marat, or Marat, or however you pronounce his name. So anyway, actually, I'm kind of kidding. The end of the book is actually much more upbeat. And I want to thank Hugh Hewitt, who's been tweeting up a storm in flagrant violation of the book's pub date embargo. (laughs) Um, But nonetheless, I appreciate his enthusiasm. Uh, Maybe we can put uh, some of his tweets up on the uh, Jonah Goldberg website. Why don't you just ask me to do it? I like being passive aggressive about these things. And um, also up on the website are some details because there are some events that are closed – but the book tour is shaping up, and we're going to have public events in all sorts of places, uh, New York, L.A., or I'm not sure about L.A., but we're working on it. Certainly in California, quite a few places. And uh, so you should check out that, the JonahGoldberg.com site when you can. And uh, what did you think of the talk with uh, Christine? Have you have, you, you have not met Christine before.
2: No, not in person, but I used to write for this website that she and Naomi Schaefer Riley managed called Acculturated. Mm-hmm. Uh, RIP Acculturated. Uh, It it, it stopped accepting new articles at the end of last year. But it was a good outlet because it filled this space that I think, for some reason, media outlets on the right are... I mean, some of them do this on the side, but Acculturated was an explicitly lifestyle and pop culture-based, right-leaning website. Uh, And I enjoyed having an outlet for those kind of sentiments because... I mean, I have more authority when I'm writing about some meaningless pop culture topic than I do when writing about tax policy because I'm 24 and no one cares what I have to say generally. So if I can convince them on something that's more meaningless, then that's an easier bet for me. But yeah, she she's great. Just another one of these people who whose knowledge seems to have no uh, no known extent, just discourse at length about anything.
0: Yeah, no, no, she's a real deal. I, I I've known Christine for a long time, and I don't know. She comes from the sort of the same universe, uh, from my experience at least. Earth two? Uh, <laughs> no, um, the old independent women's forum world um, where my wife worked years ago, and uh, um, and as I was saying, you know, when I was working on my first book, I had lunch with her, and she just opened up this whole other realm of stuff, which I kind of find fascinating. People really don't know the history of the social gospel movement. And when you try to explain, particularly to young people who don't even appreciate who H.G. Wells was as a sci-fi writer, and then you try to explain to them, well, he was not only like this huge sci-fi guy, he was also probably the most influential intellectual in the English-speaking language, and his stuff was read from the pulpits in social gospel-run churches around the country for like 20 years
2: kind of weird though because he's an atheist right
0: you know i'm not even sure about that he might have been a strange kind of christian um but i i don't i don't want to i'm going to check on that because i don't even remember
2: and we don't want to offend all of our hg wells obsessed listeners that's right all 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 seven of them um,
0: (laughs) we value extremely highly and uh oh the most interesting thing i learned on twitter yesterday what what good sentence ever starts that
2: way (laughs)
0: that the etymology or derivation of the word helicopter is not heliocopter, mm-hmm. right? The two it's not this conjunction of those two words. It is heliospter. And sorry for spitting in everyone's ears, but <laughs> um, it's the P T E R at the end, which is the same which is the same suffix for like pterodactyl. Mm-hmm. And so it basically comes from the French which means like flying screw machine. Um, which is uh, what they, which is what they were thinking about calling uh, Jeffrey Epstein's plane. But that's neither here nor there.
2: Okay, I was wondering where you. were going <laughs> <laughs> with I just that. came up with that. Uh, you know, it's
0: it's gold, Jack. <laughs> it's gold. No, um, I was just
2: afraid it would have been a worse joke than it ended up being.
0: Um, and the uh, just because I'm trying to get more pop culture stuff into this thing, um, I have been watching The Expanse, which is a sci-fi series on
2: sci-fi. S Y F Y. Not yes. That's what it is now. And uh, I really like it. Have you watched it? You know? No, but this is the sort of like hard sci-fi, near future, space-faring human race show. Yeah, it's right? based on a big
0: series right? of and, books.
2: Yeah, and yeah. it's yeah. like they're really rigorous about adherence to like physical laws of the universe and 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 whatnot. Yeah, no, it's well done. I mean, it's a little um, uh, it's a little too
0: sort of. Action show in space for me, and they're not a lot of like deep issues that it grapples with, but it's it's well done, it holds your interest, and it's one of these shows that always almost always ends in a cliffhanger that makes you want to start the next one, which is I think the essence of binge watching. Mm-hmm. Alright, so uh, go to Jonah to catch up on future stuff and go to Jonah Remnant. Remnant Jonah. What is our Twitter? Jonah right? Remnant. Jonah Remnant. Um, and say nice things about this podcast, and, and and very likely you'll get retweeted by certainly our account um, and often my account as well. If you can drop off a review at, at iTunes or any of these other places, these platforms, that would be wonderful. Um, the rate of increase of our reviews has declined, which I thought it would skyrocket after the Andy McCarthy podcast, which I thought was great. You're just saying that because I wasn't involved I'm not. That was neither a bug nor a feature. It was just the way the universe rolled out. And and if you can subscribe at those places, that would be really, really fantastic and very helpful. And we're still working on some of the swag stuff. If you've got a great slash dingo, which doesn't involve dressing up, photoshopping my dog into the uh, lead guitar player for Guns N' Roses.
2: Not um, because we're opposed to that, but because it's already been done. It's
0: been done a lot, yeah. So. Um, and no slasher dingo. I don't want, like... My Carolina dog opening the curtain like at the beginning of Psycho and killing someone in the shower. That doesn't work really. Yeah,
2: yet. your dog is has never harmed a human, right? That is correct.
0: It has never, um, never shown really any, other than barking at mailmen and that kind of stuff, never shown any real aggression towards a
2: human. Yeah, I remember the first time I met Zoe, she just hid from me and retreated into the corner of, uh, of uh, the place that we were, and that, that was that. But this was Hillsdale, right? Uh, oh wait that's right that was yeah. technically the first time I met her no that, at that point you were just sort of you brought her into a classroom building and she just wandered around and yeah
0: and then she got really excited and kept jumping up on me when I was trying to explain semicolons or whatever it was I was <laughs> doing
2: yeah because Hillsdale students have no idea what semicolons <laughs> <laughs>
0: so anyway uh, thanks again to everybody send uh, your recommendations for guests topics and all the rest and uh, we really appreciate it and I'll see you next week
2: TheRemnantPod at gmail.com Thank you, Jack.